The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The fact that you hear direct doubt being raised by prominent Republicans in his inner circle advising him, telling him this is wrong and only wrong, this is illegal. This all really builds the case for personal culpability, maybe not legal liability, but personal political culpability. And frankly, in my view, that is really what the committee is primarily aiming toward. Although along the way, you may end up helping build a stronger criminal case as well. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 13th, 2022. Yesterday, July 12th, the January 6th committee held its seventh in a series of prominent hearings, unveiling the findings of its investigation to the public. This hearing focused on the role of extremist groups like the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys in planning the assault on the Capitol, and unveiled new evidence about Trump's plans to direct protesters to the Capitol in advance of January 6th. As always, we convened afterwards on Twitter spaces to discuss. Lawfare Editor-in-Chief Benjamin Wittes moderated a conversation with Lawfare Executive Editor Natalie Orpit and Senior Editors Scott Anderson, Roger Parloff, and myself. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 13th. The January 6th Committee, Day 7. All right, folks. It is Day 7 of the hearings, and I just want to lay my cards on the table and say... I thought this was the least successful, least interesting, and least novel hearing that the committee had, which presented the least interesting information in the least interesting fashion. And so I want to lay that out as a provocation and uh, give each of you that's to agree or disagree or dispute it or uh, affirm it. Uh, Natalie, why don't you start us? Do you agree with me that this one was kind of a dud? I do not. Um, I think that it depends. I think as with everything with these hearings, it's a bit of an expectations game. So the committee had previewed that it would be talking about extremist organizations and connections with Trump. So if you were going into the hearings, hoping that you were going to find emails or hear testimony saying that Trump was on the phone with Stuart Rhodes and they planned this whole thing out, then yes, you're going to be disappointed. I'm not suggesting this was your expectation, but, but just to be for, uh, for an example. Um, but I think 
you know, A, if, if you are not as familiar with the extent to which these organizations had, in fact, planned and coordinated in advance and the degree to which they did so, and if you were not aware of everything going on behind the scenes where Trump was knowledgeably um, tweeting in ways that he knew would be influential to those groups, um, I think some of this probably did sound surprising. So, Quinta, where are you on this question? And if you're with Natalie, what do you think we actually learned during this hearing? I, I suspect that you made that initial comment just to provoke us, Ben. Um, perhaps unsurprisingly, I completely disagree with you. Um, I'm I'm more on Natalie's side. I think that I agree this did not, you know, break the whole case wide open when it came to extremist groups. I think that there are still a lot of questions that remain about um you know, the extent to which the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers were coordinating with the White House. Um, that is a, a big open question. And I'm, I'm very curious what Roger thinks about the, the way that the committee presented this material and, and what, if anything, was new there. In, in my mind, um, the information that was genuinely stunning, actually, and, and made me think that, you know, if, if this had been in the Hutchinson hearing would have been uh, a bombshell just as much as else in that hearing was the the fact that uh, Trump planned in advance clearly very carefully that he would go to the Capitol on January 6th. Um, if listeners recall, when he made that comment on the 6th in his speech, it, it kind of, it's like a one-off. I'll, I'll be honest, I kind of thought that it was, you know, a thought bubble in the way that Trump tends to throw off thought bubbles, just kind of things that pop in his brain and then he tries to do them. But it is very clear from the uh, information we learned in this hearing, which is new, that he planned to go to the Capitol um, there was a, a draft tweet that the committee obtained from the National Archives um, telling people to march to the Capitol. There was a letter of communications with, with the organizers for January 6th saying, and this I thought was incredible, uh, that they're they're planning to march to the Capitol, but they don't want to broadcast it ahead of time. And I quote, POTUS is just going to call for it unexpectedly with air quotes around unexpectedly. Um, that I think is, is hugely significant insofar as it tells us not only that Trump knew, as we learned from the Hutchinson testimony, that the crowd on January 6th was heavily armed and told them to go to the Capitol and wanted himself to go to the Capitol. He had planned that all along. This was all part of the plan. We also learned that Trump spoke to Bannon on the morning, uh, Steve Bannon, on the morning of January 5th, um, after which Bannon uh, gave his famous comments on his podcast that all hell is going to break loose uh, the, the next day. I think that's very significant. Um, and finally, I think that the the a piece of material that is really stunning in which the committee ended with was that uh, there's more witness tampering. Um, if if uh, listeners recall, after the Hutchinson hearing, uh, or at the end of the Hutchinson hearing, the committee announced that uh, folks linked to Trump had been reaching out to potential witnesses, trying to dissuade them to, from giving testimony potentially damaging to Trump. Liz Cheney announced at the end of this hearing that Trump himself tried to call a witness in the investigation. Uh, that person did not pick up the phone and instead called their... I think that the fact that not only that this uh, reaching out to witnesses is continuing, but that Trump himself is engaged in this activity is huge and speaks directly to potential criminal exposure on his part when it comes to obstruction. Roger, what do you think? Uh, uh, is, are, is there... Uh, is, is, is this as dramatic as... Uh, what Quinta says, or is this uh, largely a rehash of publicly known information? I was disappointed. Uh, it was largely hash, but 
I mean, Quint is right that, that, that there was that. I, I think that that is new, that how solid the information is that they were planning to go to the Capitol since at least, I think, since at least January 2nd and that they were trying to keep it secret. All of that is um, important and interesting. I thought the facts about the speech drafts was uh, new to me and interesting. Um, the, the fact that, uh, you know, there were no references to Pence and then he puts one in and then apparently uh, the lawyer at the, the lawyer's behest, they take it out and then he insists the next, no, put it back in. And then he ad libs eight more, uh, all of that, and, you know, and, and putting that in, knowing that he's talking to a, uh, an armed mob, which we know from Hutchinson's testimony, that's significant. Um, and, and the fact that he spoke to Bannon twice, but um, is interesting. Um, and uh, obviously, and that he tried to temper with a witness was interesting. Um, but but uh, it, since she didn't call, we don't we can't really prove that. Um, uh, since she, she didn't take the call. But there was nothing hard connecting the White House or the Trump campaign to the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers. Uh, we, we, did, we knew about the uh, reaction on the right-wing Twitter to that tweet, but the thing we need to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that, that Trump knew about it, it, we need somebody, maybe Scavino, who isn't going to testify, that Trump followed all of those right-wing crazy sites, that he knew he was getting this reaction. That's what's still missing. Um, not much about the Proud Boys today. Um, a lot of talk by the congressmen themselves more than in the past, although Stephanie Murphy was impressive. Um, and uh, Cipollone, uh, he corroborated what we knew. I didn't, I don't think there was anything new. Um, and I wasn't sure what the point was of Van Tattenhove's testimony. Uh, Stephen Ayers was, you know, interesting, but I'm not sure why they chose him. There's a lot of such people. I think the Tattenhove thing could, I'm a little queasy about it. Uh, I, I imagine a lot of people can come back and question some of the things he, he said. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I, I was disappointed. There was interesting and, and important stuff in there, but this was the least, uh, this was, yeah, the least impressive of, of, of them all. All right, Scott, we've got a 2-2 tie here. You are the tiebreaker. I will note that it is a even gender split on disappointment versus enthusiasm. So you can muddy things up here or you can uh, give the, the, the males a 3-2 win. Uh, where are you on the disappointment versus, uh, uh, versus enthusiasm this hearing? Uh, well, I will have to say, despite that weird gendered uh, pressure, I'm going to side with Natalie and Quinta. I thought this was ineffective. Thank you, Scott. My, my pleasure. Um, I thought this was a, a very effective session, actually, when you think about what the committee is actually trying to accomplish, really not quite as streamlined as some others. I think when you look at this committee's work through the lens of just building a criminal case or checking the boxes on elements, you are missing what it's actually doing, or at least a big part of what it's actually doing, and that is building the political narrative against Trump. You know, we may have already had ideas that Trump knew about a lot of these facts, knew about and the touching on the Capitol, but seeing the texture of his direct personal involvement, the fact that it was of his own volition in many cases about editing the speech, inserting references, references to Mike Pence in a way that is often seems unhinged or vindictive, the fact that you hear direct doubts being raised by prominent Republicans in his inner circle advising him, telling him this is wrong and only wrong, this is illegal, 
this all really builds the case for personal culpability, maybe not legal liability, but personal political culpability. And frankly, in my view, that is really what the committee is primarily aiming toward. Although along the way, you may end up helping build a stronger criminal case as well. I think that's also where our two witnesses fit in. Here they are making the case that President Trump has swindled a lot of the people involved in January 6th itself, exposed them to risk, presented them as sympathetic figures in a way that like, you could maybe arguably even run a little bit against the grain of some of what the Biden administration's Justice Department has done, although I'm not sure if exactly right. But it's really made the case saying that these are people who are victims of Donald Trump as much as anyone else, building a stronger case that lots of people have reasons to be grieved, to have grievances with Donald Trump and his big lie. And I really think that political impact is the thing that's going to come out of this committee most directly. And it has a positive feedback with the criminal case because the weaker Donald Trump is politically, the less cohesion his inner circle is going to have, the more likely it is that somebody is going to eventually try and provide that direct information that Roger noted that you really do probably need for a strong criminal case in this sort of, you know, we may have already had ideas that Trump knew about a lot of these facts, knew about and it did touching on the Capitol, but seeing the texture of his direct personal involvement, the fact that it was of his own volition in many cases about editing the speech, inserting references, references to Mike Pence in a way that is often seems unhinged or vindictive. The fact that you hear direct doubts being raised by prominent Republicans in his inner circle advising him, telling him this is wrong and only wrong, this is illegal. This all really builds the case for personal culpability, maybe not legal liability, but personal political culpability. And frankly, in my view, that is really what the committee is primarily aiming toward. Although along the way, you may end up helping build a stronger criminal case as well. I think that's also where our two witnesses fit in. Here they are making the case that President Trump has swindled a lot of the people involved in January 6th itself, exposed them to risk, presented them as sympathetic figures in a way that like, you could maybe arguably even run a little bit against the grain of some of what the Biden administration's Justice Department has done, although I'm not sure exactly right. But it's really made the case saying that these are people who are victims of Donald Trump as much as anyone else, building a stronger case that lots of people have reasons to be grieved, to have grievances with Donald Trump and his big lie. And I really think that political impact is the thing that's going to come out of this committee most directly. And it has a positive feedback with the criminal case because the weaker Donald Trump is politically, the less cohesion his inner circle is going to have, the more likely it is that somebody is going to eventually try and provide that direct information that Roger noted that you really do probably need for a strong criminal case in this sort of case, certainly for DOJ to bring it. That's setting aside the obstruction, which personally involving Donald Trump in an obstruction attempt, which is what happened in the last 30 seconds of the hearing today is a huge, huge deal. We don't know enough about it right now to exactly prove exactly what happened. But just a suggestion of that, I, I would echo Quint. I think that is actually a giant deal as well. All right. Let's talk about the uh, uh, batshit crazy meeting. I think it has sort of an official designation. Uh, uh, I forget what they called it repeatedly through the thing, Quinto. I'm sure we'll remind unhinged, it. The, the unhinged, unhinged meeting. meeting. Yeah. That's its um, official epithet. Yeah. So... Quinta, uh, what is the significance of the unhinged meeting and uh, so about which we had heard allusions before, but this is the hearing where we actually had it fleshed out. So what did we learn about the unhinged meeting and why is it important? So for context, I think unhinged comes from a text sent by Cassidy Hutchinson, who described it uh, to another aide, uh, the unhinged in all caps. 
Um, so that that's a little bit. Apparently, there was screaming, there was yelling, there was uh, Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel, running at, and I quote, a land speed record <laughs> to uh, intercept Sidney Powell when she was talking to the president. This meeting went on for six hours, which is, I mean, at that point, I frankly, I would have been willing to agree to basically anything to leave the meeting. But and the hearing a- moved. They, they had a diagram about how it moved all over the White House, which they never really explained why the meeting I, was moving. You know, it's like an Aaron Sorkin walk and talk. Um, in all seriousness, this is, this meeting was something that uh, the New York Times actually, I believe, reported on at or shortly after it took place. It has to do with a draft executive order that was put together by a group, including Sidney Powell and Michael Flynn, uh, that was proposing that the federal government would somehow seize state voting machines as part of I believe, a military effort to investigate voter fraud. So there are a number of things wrong with that. Um, among them is that the federal government doesn't have any power to, to do that. Um, uh, at one point, uh, Pat Cipollone uh, was shown in his deposition. Uh, he was asked to explain why that would be a bad idea to seize voting machines. And he responded, and I quote, I don't even understand why I have to tell you that's a bad thing to do, end quote. Um, so I think what the, the reason I think that the committee spent all the time on, on this meeting is that it showed uh, just how utterly deranged uh, discussions ha- had become in the Trump camp at this point. I think this, this occurred near the end of December. Um that Trump was really grasping at any available straw in order to try to maintain the fiction that he had won the election and and hold on to power. Um, And it's also important because, uh, once again, this is a meeting in which people come to Trump with some crazy idea and everyone else in the room says, this is insanity, you cannot do this, this is not based on the facts. So in this instance, uh, Pat Cipollone and Bill Barr, I don't think he was in the meeting, but I think had discussed this with Trump previously. it's just very, very clear that, you know, this is sort of Trump wanting to listen to sort of the Sidney Powell caucus and most, if not all folks in the White House uh, feeling extremely worried about where that might lead. Natalie, is is the uh, unhinged meeting uh, principally important for narrative reasons or does it have some larger significance uh, and and Roger as well, if if we're thinking about this from a Justice Department point of view, some of this hearing is directed, these hearings are directed at making sure the Justice Department proceeds with an awareness of information the committee thinks is important. Why does it care about this particular meeting? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll leave some of the, the questions of um, what DOJ might do with the details about the meeting that we learned today. But to, to build on, I'll leave that to Roger, I should say, um, but to build on something Quinta was saying, they, they got more into today the executive order that was under discussion, which I, I believe is publicly available. I have not read it. But the proposal was that the military would be used to these voting machines in states, which it has no, the military has no authority to do that, and the military is not supposed to operate domestically, and th- that there would be the appointment of a special counsel, um, and that special counsel would oversee the military operation. The special counsel, it seems, was supposed to be housed in DOJ. It's not clear why, it, to the extent it was ever considered, a special counsel based at DOJ would have any authority over the military conducting an operation. Um, But also in this meeting, we learned, um, and I believe this was reported previously as well, um, that uh, Sidney Powell believed that she had been 
appointed as the special counsel um, as of a meeting where um, a, a subsequent meeting, I believe, I don't I don't think it was the same meeting, but I could be wrong. Um, uh, Trump had asked Cipollone if he had the authority to create a special counsel and grant security clearance. And Cipollone said yes. Um, and, and so this very also unhinged legal theory of signing this sort of executive order to conduct operations that were not in no way legal and under a made up structure of legal authority is truly insane. Roger, is 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 that the principal purpose here or does it feed into some larger narrative? Well, yeah, it is. It, it does uh, lead into uh, one other thing. You know, this meeting goes on six hours. It breaks up sometime after midnight. And then, uh, you know, finally, uh, cooler heads seem to prevail in that he, he, he's not going to seize the voting machines. But he's also not going to concede uh, a defeat. And so at 1.42 a.m., uh, so just you know, less than two hours after this crazy thing ends, he sends out the tweet, the, the, the December 19, 1.42 a.m. tweet, um, uh, be there, it uh, will be wild. And, um, and, so, and that's when they begin, he begins to signal to the crazies as they describe, as his people describe this group, that he's going to uh, have an event on January 6th. And uh, it, it's going to be wild, and so that's that sort. It, it's it's a lead in there, um, but uh, it it also is just. I don't think anything was new there. It was well reported by the Times and also by Axios a few days later. And um, but uh, it is the most amazing. And they did a good job with film editing there to give us a, a feel of of what it was like in the room. Yeah, it seemed to be the the role. I was a little bit. Uh, you know, obviously, the, the account of the meeting itself is quite riveting, the way they have, you know, Cipollone and Sidney Powell kind of spliced in next to each other arguing about it or describing it. Um, but it seemed to be that the role they were attributing to it, the reason they're telling this story, is that it is the moment... And this is one of the areas where I don't think they were very effective in bringing this out. But they seem to be suggesting, as, as you just implied, that this is the moment where Trump kind of throws up his hands at the idea that there's some legal recourse available to him and decides, OK, well, we'll call out a mob. And um, and so, you know, no, they don't go seize the voting machines. No, he doesn't appoint Sidney Powell as special counsel. But he does send this tweet that the draft of which makes clear he means to march on the Capitol. Um, and and I, I thought they like I, I thought and Scott, I'm interested in your view on this. I thought they were trying to set it up as kind of a pivotal moment. But then kind of, it, you know, we kind of got a little bit lost in the details of the meeting relative to why the meeting was important. Yeah, I, mean, I don't. I don't, I don't disagree with that. I don't know if I felt quite as lost about the details of the meeting. I think the details of the meeting are important, again, because of the dynamics. They are, again, trying to really paint this picture of Donald Trump being you know, not part of the Republican mainstream, ignoring his advisors, siding with this extremely wacky group of outside individuals. Uh, and so the details of the meeting are important 
to build that case because, again, they're really, in my view at least, trying to build a public case to undermine Trump's legitimacy politically moving forward with people who might otherwise be more open to him or sympathetic with them, meaning Republican voters. So, uh, you know, I think that that's a big part of the picture here. So I think it's relevant for that reason. But I think you're right in the end, especially when you're talking about checking boxes of the political and potential culpability and responsibility. The big deal here is he comes out of this saying, this is where we generate this idea for doing a big march. Uh, and he's at this point very well informed that the procedures that are as if they proceed as they're supposed to proceed legally are going to result with him not being the president. Uh, and so he's doing something that looks at this point pretty clearly intended to obstruct them. And that becomes clear through subsequent statements. Remember around this time also, there was uh, another meeting, Pat Cipollone, uh, in, indicated that Trump had with, uh, and then perhaps some other people, I, I can't recall from my notes here, um, in which Cipollone did not attend. And when asked why he could, why he did not attend, and you know his discussion about the, the president about it, said he couldn't talk about it because it's subject to attorney-client privilege. Um, I don't know what that is. I don't think we know what that is. That's kind of the point. Um, but it certainly sounds like you're discussing something that Cipollone may have had a major issue with, uh, maybe for, for his personal liability uh, or for the sanctity of attorney-client privilege if he were in the meeting. Um, so for that reason, uh, you know, I suspect that there's other parts that other people again may be able to step in and fill in the story a little bit more about just what exactly Trump was thinking. But the circumstance is really what we get out of this meeting and events afterwards. It's pretty strong um, that clearly he had a sense that this march was going to happen and the goal was to obstruct what was happening in the Capitol. Maybe not necessarily with violence, but certainly to at least bring political pressure with people and the threat of violence to get people on Capitol Hill something other than what is expected of them. Yeah, and just uh, on the attorney-client privilege question, it is an open question whether there is a government attorney-client privilege in the setting before a congressional committee. It is not an open question that there is no government attorney-client privilege before a grand jury. And so in the event that Pat Cipollone were called and asked those questions by the Justice Department investigation, there would be no privilege served. Um, all right, let's talk about what I think is one of the most damning things that was presented at this hearing uh, which uh, both Roger and uh, Natalie alluded to before, which is the uh, apparent drafts um, of with respect to the speech, but also with respect to the tweet. Um, we, uh, we learned, uh, you can learn a lot about what the president was thinking uh, by the things that got edited out and the things that got ad-libbed in. Um, Natalie, what do you think the significance of these changes is? Yeah, I think as as Quinta mentioned, um, the perception I think widely held after hearing the speech was that Trump had maybe come up with this idea of going to the Capitol um, somewhat spontaneously, and it was just sort of a line he dropped. And I, my memory from soon after January sixth is that there were a lot of people saying, "Oh, he didn't really mean that. It was sort of rhetorical flourish. It was maybe he just meant I'll be there with you in support, not physically." Um, but there was discussion in advance. Um, he was about speaking his... metaphorically, Mark Meadows told us. Right, right. Um, but there was discussion in advance, not only about um, whether to have a line to that effect in, in the speech, and then there's the fact that he ad-libbed and built on the one line that was allowed to go back into the speech after uh, various people had tried to cut it out. Um, but there was also some discussion on the sidelines about some of the um, logistics of trying to make that happen and the fact that um, Trump was going to be dropping it into the speech, but not not announcing it in advance. 
um, in an effort to sort of rile things up and um, avoid some of the problems that I imagine his um, the White House lawyers were bringing to his attention. Quinta, do you have thoughts on the edits? I, I, it seems to me they, they spent a lot of attention on these edits and changes. And I'm, uh, again, I thought one of the less effective components of the, of the hearing was that it was not entirely clear to me what the point they're trying to bring out is, other than a certain degree of premeditation. What did you take away from the edits? I certainly understood the point to be, you know, the, the, the premeditation element, but I, I thought that was quite significant. Um, so, you know, as we've talked about, there's initially the speech is without a reference to Mike Pence, then Trump speaks with Stephen Miller, then there's a line inserted about Pence's uh, sort of calling on Pence to overage electoral vote. Then at one point, uh, they show uh, an email where a speechwriter is directed to, in all caps, reinsert Mike Pence lines. Um, and then, of course, when, when the president is giving the speech, uh, Jamie Raskin said uh, a single scripted reference in the speech to Pence became eight references. A single reference to protests at the Capitol turned into four. So I do think that it does play a significant role in, in showing that this was premeditated. Um, I think it also plays a role, again, in showing that this is kind of a tussle between Trump, who wants to put pressure on Pence, and other folks in the White House who really want him to stay far away. Uh, there was a reference to a conversation between Stephen Miller and uh, Eric Hirschman, the uh, pugnacious uh, counsel in the in the White House with the Justice Baseball bat, um, who uh, Miller recalled thought it would be counterproductive. Those were his words to talk about the Pence issue publicly. So I, I felt that it was important in, in sketching out, you know, building again the committee story of this is Trump trying to go rogue and people around him and government trying to contain him, um, but also showing that you know he he made a conscious decision that he wanted to pressure Pence, that he wanted to go to the Capitol, and he pushed for that repeatedly. And I do think that that is important because, I mean, listeners who have listened to all of our Twitter spaces may remember one of our the things we were talking about early on was, was this premeditated? Can we know about Trump's state of mind in advance of the riot? And I think that you know, being able to show this draft was edited again and again and was changed in its in its final delivery to hit these very particular set of points that had been removed, put back in, removed, put back in, just makes it gives a lot more clarity into Trump's state of mind than we initially had. I mean, I will say I was certainly um in the group of people who when Trump made that comment about going to the Capitol. Uh, on January 6th, and then went back to the White House, I kind of thought, okay, maybe it was, you know, a one-off. Not That doesn't let him off the hook. Um, but I, I certainly didn't look at that fact pattern and say this was absolutely planned and premeditated on his part. I think that the committee has completely changed my view on that in large part as of the speech. Yeah, and I'll just... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Ryan. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Natalie. Sorry, I will just add really, really quickly. Um, these two lines that were struck and then re-added and, and built on in ad-libs also reflect some of the sort of last-ditch effort and meetings that were happening around the time that, as the committee has demonstrated in other hearings, uh, there were a lot of different efforts going on in parallel to try to overturn the election on a number of fronts. So trying to um, affect electors, trying to pressure state legislatures. But the the line about Pence is straight out of the Eastman playbook of uh, trying to find that Pence had the uh, legal authority to um, reject the certification. And then this um, 
the separate question of going down to the Capitol um, brings up a, me- a meeting that they talked about with members of Congress um, that happened on December 21st, I believe. Um, there was a private meeting with re- Republican members of Congress in the Oval Office that included the vice president. And um, subsequently, Mo Brooks sent an email to Mark Meadows that included a line to the effect of only citizens can exert the necessary influence on, sen- on senators and congressmen. So I think th- those two lines reflect some of the ideas and conversations that were going on in the White House. And we saw a much more direct connection between what Trump ended up saying and what he was hearing. Roger. Yeah, I just wanted to add that I agree agree totally with Quinta and Natalie, but the uh, one of the lines that was added was was or several were the ones that are most famous and the most, you know, like the fight like hell or you aren't going to have a country anymore. And um, I, I assume also the line about where there's fraud, different rules apply. He's it, basically uh, all the r- references to 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 going down to to the to the capital and to Pence. And um, so when it comes to overcoming the First Amendment protections and saying, you know, was this an incitement to imminent violence, knowing that you had been you know, riling this crowd up for months with with election lies and, and the crowd is armed and 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 now you, uh, you're telling them to to go after Pence and, and you're telling them that they aren't going to have a country anymore. It- Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers 
and that the one with the most information about me was called Hleck. I have no idea what Hleck is. So the other day, I got my latest report, and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. You dad, sir? All right, so I want to push back on behalf of Team Disappointed here and uh, talk a little bit about what Mitty didn't have because uh, it seems to me, as Roger alluded to earlier, there are some, some very significant uh, goods that the committee uh, did not deliver today. And one of them is any significant direct contact between White House officials and Proud Boys and Oath Keepers. And, you know, the committee, we were all really impressed when they had this video of the uh, Oath Keepers and Proud Boys meeting the night before. Um, uh, but you know, there's always been this question, are you going to be able to connect it to the war room and between the war room and the Willard to Trump? There was some hints of that with Mark Meadows going to call uh, uh, Roger Stone. But this was the testimony. This was the hearing at which they were to tell us about the relationship between the president and these radical groups. Uh, and it seems to me what we walk away with 
is very much the same as what we walk in with, which is he believed, convinced himself of completely crazy shit and tweeted about it, called out the, this, uh, these groups, um, made an incendiary speech knowing or intending that uh, that w would or might produce violence, and it did. Um, seems like we don't have um, anything that directly sounds like an order or a suggestion or a private call out, notwithstanding everything we've heard about the, uh, the room at the Willard and that sort of stuff. So Roger, I wanna start with you and ask you whether 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 I'm overstating the gap here, and then I want to ask Scott and Natalie and Quinta why that bothers them less than it bothers me. Yeah, I I was disappointed. I I thought they were going to begin to fill in that link, and uh, there was nothing but. Yeah, you know, they protect the Oath Keepers protected Roger Stone, which we knew. And Roger Stone also knows Enrique Tario, which we knew. And it, it was all this uh, just the same vague stuff. Um, so, no, it, it was disappointing to me. And they, they built it up, uh, I think, in an unwise way. Also, Hutchinson, Cassidy Hutchinson had said that Mark Meadows called Roger Stone and um, and Flynn uh, the night of the 5th. And so I thought maybe there would be follow-up there about what that was about, but I don't think there was. Uh, it just sort of ends there. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I given the buildup, and uh, uh, I, I was disappointed. Scott, talk us out of it. Why, why does this... Uh does this leave a big hole in the story the committee is trying to tell? And if not, why not? But unmute yourself. Thank you. Sorry. Uh, you know, there, it, this goes back to the expectations game question. If you were coming in expecting to get a smoking gun handed to you, uh, which I never was, I don't think a lot of you watching us were, then yeah, you're going to be disappointed, um, frankly, throughout a lot of these hearings. Um, and through a lot of criminal cases uh, and civil cases that get built in courts of law, you know, smoking guns are something that doesn't come around that often. I, I do think it's particularly important to get really close to Trump here in this case because of the political dynamics around the case. You know, if DOJ were to pursue something, it would have to be incredibly strong, incredibly beyond reproach. Uh, and I don't think it's there yet. Um, but I'm not sure it was realistic to expect this to suddenly come forward with something that wouldn't have somehow leaked to the media or, you know, would be known to DOJ and leaked from DOJ at some point, therefore already be known to us. What I do think you get really close to here is showing how proximate those communications are with the connections between Meadows and Roger Stone, with the conversations between Trump himself and Steve Bannon um, that we don't know the substance of, but that happened just shortly before January 6th. Bannon went on his show and said, hey, you know, everybody come out. This is going to be something like you've never seen before. Um, those level of proximity is much closer than we've ever gotten to the President Trump's inter internal circle, really in the Mueller report that the little sketchy because a lot of people were voluntarily cooperating there, but like really there, and especially if you think of that, the first impeachment hearing on Ukraine, the big problem there is that you can never get close to Trump's inner circle in terms of testimony. We are really close to that here and then close to that inner, not only in, in part of that inner circle, close to then connecting it to this other group of people building these connections and relationships. And, you know, when you're building a conspiracy case, you don't have to have 
you know, direct proximate conversation between every participant in the conspiracy. There are lots of models, kind of classic models, courts have sketched out about chain conspiracies, of spoke conspiracies, lots of different ways these things can be structured. Now, does that mean we get across the political line that DOJ will be willing to do? I think that's a much higher threshold, and that's the harder question. But, you know, if at this point that hinges on whether Steve Bannon might say something interesting, who has just said he's willing to test to cooperate with the committee to some extent at least, and is facing very serious criminal charges that his defenses do not look good as of this week, as Roger uh, aptly documented uh, in his live tweets right earlier this week, you know, that's that's got to make Donald Trump very nervous. Um, and we have at least one other major witness Reference in regard to the obstruction discussion um, with President Trump at the very end of today's hearing, who we haven't even heard of, they haven't identified as being a witness yet, who got a call from President Trump, meaning that's got to be a big deal witness who the, President Trump has a direct relationship with, or else why would Trump himself be calling? We've seen Meadows and other people even working through intermediaries to get to Cassidy Hutchinson, supposedly. So, you know, long story short, there's still, you know, shoes left to drop on this particular case. So I, I, I don't think that. Um, that uh, I, I, I'm not confident we're not going to get there or a lot closer. Did we get there here? No. But what we got is still really compelling. Um, and I, I think it builds a criminal case and more importantly, like builds that political case pretty damning. Like the president's political responsibility, I think is pretty well established at this point. All right. We're going to go to audience questions uh, in a moment. So this is a time if you have a question to request to speak. In the meantime, Natalie and then Quinta, uh, uh, do you want to respond on the gap point? Sure. Um, Scott actually said most of what I was going to say. I think it really goes back to the expectations issue that I mentioned up top. Um, the only thing I'll add to what he said is I think this may also be an indication or, or a reminder of um, the difference between the authority and powers at their disposal that Congress has versus DOJ. So the, to the extent you were looking for some sort of smoking gun and more evidence of direct discussions between the leadership and those in the inner circle of the White House, you know, the best people to talk to and get records from would have been, you know, Roger Stone and maybe Flynn and Powell and Meadows and other people who are not testifying before the committee. And DOJ has, you know, if, if there's a grand jury involved, um, DOJ has many more investigative tools at its disposal. And so some of that evidence perhaps exists, perhaps doesn't. But um, I think it is it is certainly the case that we are butting up against the outer bounds of Congress's authorities to investigate here. Um, so I think my expectations as to what was a reasonable thing to expect in terms of evidence were pretty low. Um, and so they were met. Quinta? Yeah, I'll, I'll be boring and add to the chorus. I mean, I do think um, Scott's point about the difficulty of getting close to Trump in the, all of these investigations, I think, is extremely important. And perhaps I wasn't expecting that they'd be able to draw a straight line between, say, Trump and Stuart Rhodes or Trump and the Proud Boys, precisely because in, in you know the Mueller report, again and again, what we see is that Trump is sort of able to build a firewall around himself by not using email, by having other people sort of run errands for him, by using language that is just vague enough. I mean, if you think of uh, Be There, Will Be Wild, perhaps we can compare that to uh, the, the famous Russia, if you're listening comment, right? It's kind of a solicitation, but it's made in public. It's, a, it's kind of vague, you know, uh, it's not a, a direct request. Um, so I do think that Given what we know about how Trump operates, I, I wasn't particularly surprised and wasn't really expecting that the committee would be able to show anything more direct here. All right, Pauline, you get the first question today. Hi, Ben. Um, that allegation at the end of witness tampering against Trump, is there any chance 
that might actually come to anything? Is uh, Garland going to do anything about that? Thanks. Who wants to take that one? Well, I'll take a stab. Um, uh, I mean, calling the person is, is a bad look, and it's crazy, uh, but uh, they did not, uh, you know, call DOJ and get somebody with a wire on the phone and have him complete the call and find out what he was going to say. So I don't know what you do with that. Um, you know, he'll obviously say, I, I was just uh, calling her to wish her the best or, whatever, you know, whatever. Uh, but it was uh, a non-call. So I, I don't think it's prosecutable. Maybe maybe uh, I'm wrong about it. Doesn't it sort of depend uh, if there's a voicemail message, what it says, right? I mean, the pr presumably calling somebody who's going to be a witness in and of itself is certainly not an obstruction. But the question is what message was communicated, right? Right. And I didn't hear anything about that. So uh, you're, you're right. I guess if there was a message, maybe maybe there's something there. But she, she didn't mention that. I, I we do know, however, that sorry, go ahead, Quinta. I was just going to say, uh, you know, Trump's team has a habit of leaving voicemail messages that uh, could be used as evidence in a potential obstruction prosecution. There's uh, audio that you can listen to of uh, one of Trump's lawyers, John Dowd, calling the lawyer for Michael Flynn and kind of giving him a wink, wink, nudge, nudge about what Trump would like to see him do when it comes to the investigation. So I, while I agree, I didn't hear anything about a voicemail in this case. I would not be surprised if one surfaces at some point. Yeah, and I was just going to say, we do know that the committee actually passed this information on to DOJ. That was something that Representative Cheney mentioned. Um, so there's there's also, you know, there doesn't necessarily have to be a voicemail message. There could other be there could other there could also be other circumstantial evidence, like if uh, this person had gotten emails or phone calls from others in Trump's circle saying Trump's going to contact you because he wants to talk to you about your testimony, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think it is the only possibility is if there is a voicemail, although that would certainly be the most powerful case. Right. But I mean, my only point is that the mere fact of a Trump call is not it's, it, it may raise an obstruction or a witness tampering question, but it is not itself evidence of witness tampering. It's evidence of a witness contact that could or could not be an effort to uh, tamper with the witness, right? Yes, in a vacuum, I don't think it's evidence of, um, of uh, witness tampering, but I, I suspect, given that we know the committee already passed this on to DOJ, I suspect there is more, more context that was not specified today. We have a question from Adele. Adele, the floor is yours. I was very taken aback by Von Tatenhove's testimony, um, particularly when he traced this militia movement of the Oath Keepers back to Bundy. And so I'm, I'm making a statement that I'd love to have a comment um, to. He, um, uh, you know, I I'm, I'm, can't but be concerned that we have no specific domestic terrorist laws and I worry in the light of the movement of the Oath Keepers that went up to January 6th, what is our future like if we don't address the domestic terrorism? Who wants to take a crack at that? I, I can take a quick crack at that. 
Um, you know, Adele, I, I sympathize, I think, with the significance and importance of addressing domestic terrorism 100 percent. The Biden administration has come out and said, uh, talked a lot about this. They have a strategy. They have a number of National Security Council officials working on. I interviewed one of them, Josh Geltzer, the Lawfare podcast, probably about a year ago now, about their strategy on this. It was a really illuminating conversation. Uh, they, they're thinking this through. Um, I don't I personally don't think it comes down to there being a domestic terrorism statute. Um, there are lots of federal laws that often overlap with acts of domestic terrorism, whether it's targeting federal offices, uh, hate crimes legislation. In fact, FBI uh, has historically, I don't know if they still do, because now they have a more committed unit to it, they historically use kind of hate crime fusion cells that uh, investigate the overlap of hate crime and other types of violent crimes, which is like targeting federal officials or federal offices or interfering with federal processes. Um, it's really a matter of the FBI kind of making it a priority and using these authorities. Um, and, and there's a sign that actually the current FBI is starting to do that and has started to, to do that. The Biden administration certainly seems to be pushing in that direction. Um, so signs of progress there. Um, and there are lots more to talk about different authorities that could be used or might be used and some of the constitutional challenges and concerns over doing that. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't focus too much on the lack of domestic terrorism statute or legal prohibition because there are lots of other federal statutes that cover a lot of what we're concerned about here. And a lot of other items, there's going to be, you know, First Amendment protections or federalism issues with with trying to legislate something more directly. Yeah, just to add to that briefly, um, there is not really any conduct that we're worried about here that's purely, that's legal, right? So that suggests that the problem is not a statutory problem. It's an investigatory problem. It's a volume of cases problem. But it's not like it's not like there's some category of activity uh, other than First Amendment protected activity, which, you know, you can't make illegal, uh, that is that we can't get to because the law doesn't reach. Um, So I think, you know, I think the fact the absence of a statute called domestic terrorism uh, is something people talk about a lot, but I don't think it's a big part of the problem. Uh, Greg Wallace, uh, you have a question. Uh, thank you very much. Um, so thanks uh, to all of the experts who are speaking here. I really appreciate this. Uh, so I guess my question is around um, kind of what you were just speaking about, which which is uh, there is a free speech, uh, you know, right in this country. And some of the people who talk about what happened on January 6th say, well, it was just a bunch of Americans. Uh, exercising their free speech. And um, I, their I don't... Their free speech to break that. windows and... and well, go right, into- right, right, right. No, exactly. So so there was a huge violent aspect of it. And individuals have been uh, charged uh, because they acted violently. And so the question in front of the committee is, well, was there other responsibility other than the individuals who engaged in the violent activity? Uh, which is a really interesting question. Um, I guess for me, you know, there's a lot of Americans, and I think I put myself in this category, who want the DOJ to do more, right? And so when I join this uh, session and I listen to you all who are, you know, much more knowledgeable and expert on the question of law than I am, say that, well, you know, maybe there isn't really the provable connection between what happened on January 6th and the actions of the president, um, it's frustrating because, you know, I want the DOJ to do something about this. Uh, and 
anyway, I'll wrap up uh, and I'm just interested in your thoughts. But, you know, there's a lot of people outside of the U.S. who say, well, Americans are actually are too nice. Like our protests aren't strong enough. You know, the people on the left who want the DOJ to do something should be more vocal. Right. So uh, I guess there's this tension in my mind between, you know, how do you decide uh which uh, causes deserve and um, should be protected, right? Obviously, with me saying very clearly that none of what happened on January 6th, or the violence anyway, was was acceptable. Thanks. All right. So there's a lot there, and uh, I will bite off one piece of it, which is uh, when Roger and I were questioning whether the uh, connections between Trump, the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers uh, was firmly established in the uh, narrative of the committee today. That was not a comment on the criminal process at all. Um, And if the answer to that question is no, it doesn't mean that there will be no criminal accountability for Trump. It means that there is one particular avenue of criminal accountability that uh, may be not provable. But there are a bunch of others. Uh, For example, the uh, effort to uh, uh, obstruct, um, you know, the the possibility of of fraud on uh, uh, in the vote count or defrauding the United States by submitting fake electors, the John Eastman stuff. So, you know, what the committee is doing is not making a criminal case. What the committee is doing is telling a story. And we and that story maps in about. 10 or 15 different ways on two possible criminal law questions. And what we're trying to do is evaluate how how compelling the story is along a bunch of different axes. Um, That's not the same task that a prosecutor goes through. And the Justice Department will go through an entirely different process of starting with elements of a crime. Uh, Do others have thoughts on this? Um, Just, uh, I... I, I agree with you. Uh, I, uh, um, I, I wanted, I, I've always felt that this, there was an incitement of riot uh, case here, an incitement of insurrection case, and I've been disappointed that no one, you know, seems to take it seriously because of, you know, the, the First Amendment issues, uh, which I, I think can be overcome. And I thought after Hutchinson's testimony, it just really uh, uh, reinforced that view that that's a viable case that should be brought in addition to these other threads that you're talking about the um, you know the false elector scheme and and the pressure on on uh, the vice president and you know the calls to to Georgia um, which is being prosecuted separately probably but um, so uh, and I am. I am frustrated. And, and there was an article in The Times just two days ago, a Katie Bender article, which was really a, 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 a kick in the gut for me that, you know, that the Hutchinson testimony caught the DOJ so unawares that, you know, they really haven't been looking at that uh, as a possibility. They're sort of wait, seem very passive about waiting for a witness to say, oh, it was Trump. Um, and uh uh, anyway, I, I just wanted to tell the reader that I share some of his frustration. Scott? 
Yeah, I'll say, you know, I think the thing you have to bear in mind about in this case, in particular about Trump himself, is something we've hit on, I mentioned a little bit at the top, which is that there's a gap between what you you would want to see for a possible legal case period based on the elements of the crime uh, and what it will actually take for the Justice Department to bring charges against President Trump. The former, I think, is very close to being checked if it hasn't been checked already. If Donald Trump were not the president or had not been the president during this period, uh, you know, I think you could see just Department bring criminal. I don't know if it's there tight, but I think you are. If you're not there yet, you're extremely close and within, uh, you know, striking distance. The difference is, is that the Justice Department is, of course, controlled by the president. It's the same agency that represents the president and the presidency, perhaps more important. Uh, and they are always worried about long-term carryover effects about saying, well, what is this going to do to the separation of powers? What is this going to do to the current president and future presidents um, for taking sorts of actions like this? And so what you have to do is real the case Trump did is so strongly decisive and that his involvement was so personal that it's going to be easily distinguished from other cases where, you know, political uh, uh, organizations that follow political leaders in the United States, um, you know, might do something that president that, that president didn't intend or disagree with, and really make the case. No, this is direct involvement that not just checks the boxes, but checks them, um, you know, beyond reproach. Uh, that latter threshold, who knows exactly where it is? Frankly, ultimately, probably comes out of the judgment of Merrick Garland uh, and other senior Justice Department officials involved, or whoever is given the decision-making authority on this. Um, but that's really what we're talking about getting closer to here. The thing, the reason why I think this committee is very important on that regard is not not just bringing forward new facts, although that is important, um, and frankly, often strengthening the facts we have, bringing in the color and the texture and making the case that like this is pretty egregious, but also building the political context in which, against which these decisions are going, being made and may be made in the future to make it look a lot, to socialize the idea and make it a lot more acceptable that this president in particular did something extremely wrong and can be, it should be, approached this way uh, in a way that's not going to harm the branch in the future. Katie Benner made this point. I'll give her credit when she's on Rational Security the other week. I think it's a really good way to think of what the committee's doing. Um, and so, you know, in that regard, it, it may be frustrating there, but it's not about favoring one particular movement or each or idea over the other. It is really about the separation of powers and the idea of the presidency. There's a lot of reasons to be frustrated by that. And there is, frankly, a little bit of an accountability gap because the impeachment mechanism that's supposed to hold the president accountable is so hard to use in a highly partisan split Congress and era that we live in. Um, and, and that's a point of frustration. But it's not about one particular movement or speech trend. It's really about the dynamics of the different parts of our government, in my view. All right. We have just a couple more minutes and we have two more questions and I want to get to them both. Stacy, you get the penultimate question today. Not really a question per se, but I just agree with Roger. I don't see how he cannot be charged with incitement. I mean, none of it would have happened, period, if he didn't call everybody to do exactly what they did. There's no other explanation, but to bring charges, I, I just don't understand how it's such a... <sighs> How how is it so difficult? It would not have happened. Uh, so, Roger, why is that? Um, uh, why is that? Uh, why is it even a question whether there's an incitement case to bring for those who are similarly incredulous to Stacy? What's the uh, the brief uh, First Amendment Brandenburg 101 here? Yeah, there's a very high bar um, uh, for what you can legally say to trigger a uh, that uh, what you can legally say you can say some very provocative things at a political rally uh, and it, so it it has to show some I should defer to Natalie on this for the uh, the some of the examples in the actual legal language and um, 
maybe that's what I'll do. But it it is a very high bar, and we've had lots of uh, situations in the past. Uh, well, I'll, I'll just defer to Natalie on on this. Natalie Brandenburg, one hundred and one. Yeah, I mean, the basic contours are that, you know, we feel very strongly about free speech in this country. And so if you are going to charge someone with um, criminal liability for having just said something rather than taken specific actions that um, that resulted in damage or violence, um, you need to show a number of specific elements. Um, and the most tricky one, um, which the committee actually has made some significant progress on, um, goes to the speaker's intent. Uh, there's also a requirement of imminence. And it, it's there's a body of case law that is, I think, to those who are uh, not lawyers or otherwise uh, familiar with First Amendment jurisprudence, um, really a very surprisingly high bar um, to clear for what types of speech are sufficiently dangerous to get liability for. Um, I'll just add one quick thing, which goes to both this point and our previous question, which is I think it's important to um, take a couple steps back because I share the frustration that DOJ is not doing everything it could. Um, but I also think that it's it's a little bit, I, I think we should be wary of thinking of the only action as mattering is what DOJ brings in terms of criminal cases. I think there are a lot of other ways in which the government is responding to what happened on January 6th and ways that the government should respond that are not bringing criminal cases against individuals, which I am not suggesting should not be happening. I think very much that it should. But that's not, as I've said, probably ad nauseum. I'm sorry to people who've listened to me a lot. A lot. Um, I think the committee's work is not meant to be to build a criminal case. It may assist in that, but DOJ is perfectly capable of building its own criminal case, and they may be getting some useful things from the committee, I think primarily in the form of political support um, for the idea um, perhaps some factual support as well that they haven't come across in their own investigations, but that's a little unclear. But the committee is also doing more work than that, and it's doing things that the that DOJ can't do and that can't be accomplished through the um, criminal justice system. And that is, in fact, today I think was the first time that we've really heard someone on the committee articulate what one of the committee's purposes is, which is to create a historical record. Um, and that's very powerful, especially if you're sort of a scholar of um, post-conflict situations in other countries or major, um, internationally major um, turning points for governments, um, that just the act of creating a narrative, telling a story, creating a coherent record is a very powerful tool for establishing accountability. It does not have the same satisfaction as hearing a four-person of a jury proclaim someone guilty or, or not guilty, but it does have a meaningful effect. And the, the last thing I'll say quickly is this is also an instance where the criminal law is not going to be sufficient because what we saw on January 6th was so unprecedented that, in fact, I think it, it raises questions about what laws need to be in, in place because the current system, the current laws don't prevent things that it turns out we want to prevent. Um, that may be laws, statutes that Congress wants to think about. There are, in fact, some already that relate more to 
um, the election system and the way that those things happen. I don't think there's a whole lot of discussion about, you know, the Brandenburg uh, incitement question that we've been talking about. Um, but it's also things like within the executive branch, written policies within DOJ to um, formalize some of the things that we used to consider norms that the Trump administration really rejected. Um, and Lawfare has done a lot of coverage on various aspects of what I just talked about. So I would encourage everyone to to go to our January 6th project page um, and peruse some of our work. Okay, Itamar, you get the last question today. We got to be quick on the question and quick on the answers. So all else being equal, um, how how does uh, Trump's political and uh, legal situation change if he had gone to different levels of the Capitol? I'm going to take that one myself uh, uh, because I can answer it very quickly and easily. It's an unanswerable question because the uh, it, what he it would depend entirely on what he tried to do at the Capitol. If he went to the Capitol steps and laid a wreath and uh, prayed, uh, you know, a hail uh, hail Mary. Uh, it would probably improve his legal situation if he went in there to a coordinate branch of government and barged in. Uh, uh, it would damage his legal situation. But you'd have to know what he what he did there in order to answer it. We are going to leave it there. Quinta Jurassic, Roger Parloff, Scott R. Anderson, and Natalie Orpet. Thank you all for joining us, and thanks to the hundreds of people who joined us on this Twitter space. Uh, we'll be back next time after the next hearing, as long as this goes on. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com backslash lawfare, while you'll also get access to special events and other content available only to supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, and look out for our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th, The Aftermath. This podcast was edited by the team at Goat Rodeo, and our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>